Our Bible reading today is from the Gospel according to Luke, uh, chapter 14, and we're reading verse 25 to 35. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, that is Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he is enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is to be thrown away. He who has ears to hear let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Trevor. Good morning. I'm going to pray one more time. Let me remind you this incredible promise before we start from Philippians 4. Uh, Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Um, Father, we, uh, we, we open your word this morning. We come here. Um, you knowing every single second of our, of our week, um, every sorrow we have, every worry we have, everything we rejoice in, and you meet us. Um, Lord, we, we come uh, to hear from you. Um, would you. Would you supply every need that we, we have um, in this moment um, in Jesus according to uh, the glory of Christ? There's nothing greater than that. And what confidence we can have um, coming to you now. Um, meet us, Lord. Teach us. Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right. Um, we've been making our way through Luke's gospel for a little while now, um, tracing the life of Jesus from his, from his birth uh, to uh, those, his time in Galilee. Remember that? Um, we're in the section where he's on the road with his disciples. He's making his way to Jerusalem. Uh, we've covered a lot, haven't we? How you doing? How you, how you feeling about Jesus at this point? Um, we're in this traveling section where you'll notice there's less miracles, right? 
There's, there's a lot more teaching, a lot of parables. We're looking at two this morning. Um, hey, I'll be honest, I kind of miss the calming the storm scenes, right? I kind of miss Jesus in a boat. Um, I, I miss the uh, dining with sinners, Jesus, right? I miss the uh, raising little girls from the dead, Jesus. Love that. Um, last number of weeks, though, have been, they've been kind of tricky, haven't they? They've, it kind of falls in this category of the hard sayings of Jesus. Um, repent or perish. Uh, the gate is narrow. Few will find it. Hate your family. <laughs> um, some hard sayings of Jesus. A lot to, lot to explain. Um, kind of miss the Galilee section. Um, miss Jesus sleeping in a boat, calming waves. Uh, but this section is, in, is crucial to hear, crucial to understand and receive uh, because it gives us the full message of Jesus. And in our culture, um, people, are, people are kind of fine with Jesus, right? No, no big issues with Jesus. Uh, he's a revolutionary, right? He, he dines with sinners. He cares for the poor. He brings in the marginalized. He went around healing the lame, the blind, the sick. Who could be against Jesus? Um, and it's actually that that public opinion that sets the context for today's passage. Verse 25 says, now great crowds accompanied him. Um, there, there's all, we'll keep reading, keep stick with it, and you'll see that there are times when public opinion of Jesus is extremely negative, enough to get him executed. But that's not the scene in this, uh, that's not the case in this scene. In, in this specific scene, at this moment, uh, Jesus is looked on extremely favorably by the crowds. Great crowds accompanied him. It means they're going with him. They're, they're proceeding together. Um, his ministry's picking up steam. He's been going from town to town. He's been doing some amazing things. He's preaching, performing miracles, healing many people. Um, basically, what we have here are these fellow travelers. Um, it's not just the 12 that are, that are kind of going along with Jesus at this point. It's a great crowd that are, that, that are, that are accompanying him. Um, but essentially, what we have are fellow travelers who are caught up in the excitement of a new movement but they're not personally committed or affected in any way. Um, the crowd is tagging along because they're interested in what Jesus is doing. He's interesting. He's saying amazing things. He's doing amazing things. But they have this kind of superficial enthusiasm. And Jesus is disturbed by this. And so it says he turns to them and he addresses the crowd. Right? He knows that their enthusiasm is superficial. He knows it's easy to follow him at this point when things are going really well. Uh, but in this traveling section of Luke's gospel, he's making his way to Jerusalem, and his destination is death. And keep reading, and you see that the, the multitudes of disciples there, they, they, they begin to rejoice and, and praise God for the mighty works that he's done. Uh, blessed is the king who comes, Hosanna. But those cries of praise quickly will turn to cries of opposition. Crucify him. Um, and Jesus knows what's ahead, right? He knows what's, what's going to happen. He knows the enthusiasm will fall away. And so he turns and he addresses this crowd. And he gives them two short parables. Um, two, probably two of the shortest parables of Jesus. Um, lesser known, uh, incredibly simple. Um, each of them are a couple sentences. And each of them uh, make one same point. It's the hard sayings of Jesus. Um, at both parables make the same, same, same point. Uh, one is from the business world, you'll see, and one is from warfare. Uh, but in both cases, you see that someone is embarking upon a costly enterprise. 
In the first parable, verse 28, we're called to imagine ourselves as, as wanting to build a tower, um, probably something of a, of a watchtower. Um, it's an important building. It's, it's significant enough of a structure to lay uh, a foundation. And, and Jesus says, which of you desiring to build this kind of tower would not first sit down and count the cost, whether you have enough supplies to complete the project? Um, right, so the, 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 the supplies for this building project are, are costly, they're expensive. Uh, Jesus says if, if you don't first assess whether you have what it takes to complete the project, you might get halfway through, uh, not be able to finish it. Think of the, the shame as the people mock, mock you. He, he says, don't be like that man who first began to build that tower and who was not able to finish it. He says, first sit down and count the cost. It's better to, start, uh, to not start than to start it and not complete it. And pretty simple. Uh, the second parable is uh, e- equally simple, but the stakes are incredibly higher. Um, in, in the first story, the, the cost of the supplies uh, for building that tower are very expensive. Uh, the second one, uh, there's the lives of 10,000 people at stake. These 10,000 soldiers, even more valuable. Um, the, the king who, de- who, who fails to deliberate whether he has what it takes to win that battle, will suffer far more than shame, suffer far more than, than ridicule from his neighbors. He'll almost uh, surely lose most of his 10,000 troops. In each of the parables, the path is meant to be uh, obvious. It's meant to be simple. Uh, anytime Jesus begins a question like that, hey, which one of you would not? Or what king would not? He, he's saying the, the answer to that question is obvious and clear. Of course the builder needs to first sit down and, and, and count the cost of the project and, and take stock to make sure he, he, he can pay the price required to build that tower. Of course the king needs to first uh, be absolutely clear whether he has what it takes to enter into and win that battle. Right? It's easy to start a ba- uh, to build a, a tower. Um, it, it's easy to rush into war. But Jesus is urging this enthusiastic crowd to not be like that foolish builder or that king who rushes into action without first considering the cost of their endeavor. It's like 20,000 troops against 10. The, the call to discipleship is, is, is nothing to be trifled with or engaged in lightly. Jesus makes it perfectly clear that to be a disciple following Jesus, it will cost a person everything. The cost won't look the same for everyone, uh, but Jesus requires that every person renounce 100% of what they have, whether it be little or much. Michael Knowles puts it this way. He said, salvation is free, but it will cost us our lives. Salvation, it's free, right? Entry into the kingdom, it's by grace. It's not based on what we do. It's based on the blood of Jesus. It's this free gift But at the very same time, it will cost us our lives. Each of the parables, they have those three words. Did you notice? First, sit down. Before you stand up and act, before you follow me, first sit down and think. Take a seat and consider what it's going to cost you to be my disciple. Uh, We don't do that a lot, do we? Um, We we just did our kind of three weeks of hope explored. Hopefully in each of those weeks there's this this call to believe, this call to come to Jesus. Hopefully you get that every single Sunday, this bid to to, to come and follow Jesus. But Jesus also says, but also consider what's going to cost you. 
He wants to make that absolutely clear. And so that's what we want to do this morning. We, we talk a lot about church not just being gathered but scattered, right? Church isn't just what happens on a Sunday. We, it's when our communities are, are sent out on mission into the city. Uh, but before we stand up and, and, and go and live our missional lives, let's do what Jesus suggests here and, and, and sit and think about the, the cost that will be to carry out this mission and the cost of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. John Stott said, if we did this, if we counted the cost of following Jesus, we would save ourselves much sorrow and the, cost of, and, and the cause of Jesus much dishonor. The Christian landscape is littered with builder's debris and the Christian battlefield with corpses. The grim remains of those who ignored the advice of Jesus and, fr- and failed first to count the cost. Um, let me ask you this question. What, is, what does our culture say it means to be a Christian? Um, I think in many in the Western uh, kind of context view the Christian way as the, the easy way. Um, it, it's for those who, uh, who aren't willing to think for themselves. Um, it's for those who are weak. It's for those who are maybe after the comfortable life. Um, one of my heroes of the faith, George Mueller, he wrote about his father in this way. He said his father was a worldly man who raised his, his children in worldly ways. Uh, and he said that he, he, his dad still, though, wanted him to become a clergyman. And he wrote, not that I would serve God, but that I would have a comfortable life. Um, even today, some, some are drawn into ministry uh, because in some denominations, it's pretty cushy, right? Um, pretty good man's, pretty good, pretty good salary, possibly. But actually, in this passage, Jesus tells uh, the, the real Christian life is actually quite the opposite. It's, it's not the cushy life. It's not the comfortable life, because Jesus requires his followers to give up everything in their lives for his sake. It's incredibly costly to be a true disciple of Jesus, He tells us what that cost is like in the section in the form of three demands. Um, Three times he lays down this this condition, um, and then he adds, unless you do this, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you do this, you can't be my disciple. That's kind of shocking, isn't it? Um, We we think of Jesus as inclusive, right? As, as, As calling all, as loving all, which is true, but he also speaks about how few will enter into the kingdom. Remember Alan preached on the narrow gate a couple weeks ago. The gate is narrow, the the way is hard, and and few will find it. And so let's look at these three demands that Jesus lays out for his followers. Firstly, Jesus calls his disciples to put him above our earthly relationships. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's a hard saying of Jesus, right? Um, I reckon if you, if you go out on the streets and, and say, hey, read them that, and said, who said that? Like, would they guess Jesus? <laughs> that's, that's shocking language. Um, in this scenario, we're not meant to take Jesus' words literally. And Jesus isn't saying that we are to literally hate our families, Literally hate our our wives and our husbands and our children, ourselves. 
And Craig Bloomberg points out that often in the Greek, as it was written here, especially when it's influenced by the Hebrew and the Old Testament backgrounds, it's, the word is not meant to refer to emotion, but to commitment. Okay, so he's not, love and hate, they're not, uh, he's not speaking this emotional reaction to someone, but it's a, a, a way to, to talk about your commitment. Which person are you most loyal to? Um, or it could mean to choose or not to choose. Malachi chapter one, remember the Lord said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. It's not that, that God had hate in his heart towards Esau, it's that he chose Jacob. Right? He chose to make a covenant with Jacob to be loyal to him. And that's the way Jesus is using love and hate here. We're to love God much more than our own families. Loyalty to Christ above all earthly relationships. Right? And to help us understand, remember that relationships and marriage and sex and family and procreating, and, and children. These are God's good creation. They're all part of the creation mandate in Genesis chapter one. So Jesus cannot mean for us to reject what God has created and even commanded us to do. Um, I'd also suggest that Jesus probably took the 10 commandments pretty seriously, right? Fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. Um, you see Jesus, that's one of the last things he did as he hung on the cross, as he said to John, this is your mother now. Um, would you make sure she's looked after? And also in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to love our enemies, right? Um, it's inconceivable that he would then tell us to, to not, to, to, to hate our families. Does that make sense? That, that, that Jesus does not want you to literally hate your families, but he does require that we love him above all else, including our families. Our loyalty to him must come first. Let me ask you this, because I'll put it into a positive and a negative. Is your love for Jesus more than your love for your fill-in-the-blank? Is your love for Jesus more than your new bride? Is, he more, is your love for Jesus more than your children? Let me ask you in the negative. Is your relationship with your fill-in-the-blank hindering your relationship with Jesus? Or for the would-be disciple, are you willing to follow Jesus even if it means being rejected by your earthly families? Which is a real thing. Um, it's a real thing in places like North Africa or Middle East or India, places where decision to become a Christian almost certainly means being cast out your, your biological family. Um, it's a thing in our, in our context. We've, we've had people in our church family who decided to follow Jesus and their families are so upset that they won't even come to their baptism. But those people have done that anyway because Jesus means more to them than any earthly family. It's this costly discipleship. We must love and value Jesus above all earthly relationships no matter how dear they are to us or else they are an idol. And it's not normal in our culture to have uh, handmade idols necessarily, little statues of gods in our homes, but don't think for a minute that we don't have them. If anything, our idols hold our hearts even tighter than a little statue. For many of us, our idols are the people that we sleep next to at night. For many of us, our idols might be the children living under our own roof. 
It might be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Anything you love and value more than Jesus is an idol. And Jesus says, you can't be my disciple if that's the case. I require your complete devotion and loyalty. But Jesus, why would you want me to love my family less? He's not saying for you to love them less. He's saying to make sure you love me more. Um, In fact, loving and valuing and treasuring Jesus more than anyone else is actually the only way to love them properly, right? If you want to be a better husband, love Jesus more than your wife. If you want to be the best parent possible, find ways to deepen your relationship with Jesus first. Um, I think I've shared this before, but uh, one day I was in the car with my daughter Ida, and she she said, Dad, I, I know you love me, but I think you love Jesus more. And I, I laughed and I said, you know what, you're right. Um, and obviously that comes with a lot of explaining, a lot of, a lot of action. Uh, but I want it to be normal in our family for us to, to love Jesus more than anyone else. I don't want Jenny and I to be able to look at each other and say, I love you so deeply. I'd do anything for you, but I love Jesus more. Teach your kids to love and treasure Jesus more than anyone else, even you, and you'll fulfill your duty to them as a parent. To love and treasure God above all other people and things is to worship the only one who can truly satisfy your every desire and give you exactly what you want and need. Your wife cannot do that. Your husband cannot do that. A boyfriend or a girlfriend make for terrible objects of worship because they make for terrible gods. Children, cannot fill that void in your heart. Only God can. And that's why you must love and value Christ above all else. In order to be a real follower of Jesus, we must love him above all earthly relationships. Uh, Secondly, we must put Christ before our ambitions. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Right? We can safely say that Jesus is a terrible salesperson. Right? Um, Jesus, are you, not, are you not wanting to gain a bigger following or not? You're here to, to introduce people to the kingdom. What are you saying? Why are you telling people in order to be a disciple they have to hate their families? You must love and value you above even those who are nearest and dearest to them. And now you're saying you, that we have to carry a cross which, which is lost on us. It's shocking language to these first century listeners. Um, that, that, that weight of that phrase, bear your own cross, doesn't hit us because in the cross, our culture is this, it's become the symbol of love and devotion, right? Um, it's, it's an, a lot of you have jewelry right now with a cross on it. Many of you might have a little cross tattoo or something, Right? But to have a cross necklace would have been absurd for those living in the first century Roman rule because the cross was a repulsive means of execution, right? It's, it's, it'd be like having a noose necklace, right? Or a little electric tattoo, electric, electric chair tattoo. You'd be like, why, what, what is that? That is repulsive. The cross was that. It was a way of terrorizing a population and putting down dissent. Those, those bearing or carrying a cross would have been criminals. They would have been slaves. They'd make a criminal carry the horizontal piece of a cross as they walked to their place of ex- execution. The cross was shame. 
And this is what Jesus told the crowds they'd have to do in order to be one of his disciples. Mike McKinley wrote, the the call to carry one's cross is a call to a one-way trip to death. The call to carry one's cross is a call to a one-way trip to death. It's the opening line of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship, when he says, when Christ calls a man, he he bids him to come and die. What a terrible sales pitch. (laughs) But this is the essence of Jesus' message about his discipleship. The, the, the metaphor he uses is crucifixion. Does that mean every one of his followers will literally die a martyr's death? No, obviously not. He wasn't being literal when he said you must hate your, your family. He's not being literal when he says you must carry an actual cross to an actual execution. Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 34, gives the clearer picture of what Jesus me- means in that metaphor. Um, in Mark 8, Jesus is foretelling his, his death and resurrection And in verse 34, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And and Jesus is being literal there, right? He would actually be killed on the cross. He would actually rise from the dead three days later. And Peter couldn't believe this in that scene, right? And he actually takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Um, And then Jesus rebukes him back. It's this awkward exchange, but it's this, this self-denial. Jesus says, if, then he, he then says to the crowd, if, if anyone wants to come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. And it's that, that self-denial, that death to self, that, that putting to death your selfish ambition, that's what Jesus means, to bear your own cross. A disciple must deny himself, die to self-will, he must take up his cross, which in Jesus' own example means to embrace God's will. That's what it literally meant for Jesus. To, to bear the cross meant to pray, Father, not my will be done but yours. And to do this no matter what the cost. This is what it looks like to follow Christ. Will some of his followers die a gruesome death? Yes. Many are today. Will all of us? Certainly not. Should we all be ready to? Absolutely. And don't hear this the wrong way either. There, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious. Um, Jesus wants you to use that ambition to further his kingdom, not yours, though. It's God's, God's kingdom uh, hopefully does include successful people. Okay? It's okay to reach the top of whatever area you're in. But real followers of Jesus do so for the sole purpose of using that influence to expand God's kingdom and of making his name great, not ours. We're called to give up our small, selfish ambition and spend our lives in service to Jesus. We're to put Christ above our earthly relationships. We're to put Christ above our ambitions. And thirdly, we're to put Christ above our possessions. Look at verse 33. So therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Hmm. Huge implications here. That, that word renounce, it's either translated as renounce or give up. And, and probably for our understanding, renounce is probably the better word because he's not, again, he's not being literal here. 
He's not saying that we have to get rid of our possessions, all of them, any more than he's saying that we are to literally hit our family or literally get ourselves crucified. So what is Jesus saying? Are some Christians called to voluntary poverty? Yes. Um, remember Jesus' interaction with a rich young ruler. Jesus tells him that he, he must sell all that he has and give the proceeds to the poor. Right? Because Jesus knew that that stuff had a hold of his heart. And so he says, you must get rid of it. Sell everything. Why? Because it's keeping you from me. Jesus knew for that young man, his possessions meant more to him than the kingdom of God. Right? They, were, they were keeping him from following Jesus. And so some are called to give it all up. Um, but that's not the call to all of Jesus' disciples. Uh, read the New Testament. Really, that young man was the only person who Jesus told that, to do that specifically to. So what does he mean that we are to renounce all that we have? John Stott said Jesus is calling us to develop an inner detachment to material things. Develop an inner detachment to material things. This is what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, right? In Matthew chapter 6, when he said, Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Remember what he said? For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Right? Where, where, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Peterson puts it this way. He said, simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. I think this one's the hardest, especially in our context, because in our context, we're incredibly materialistic. Right? We, we judge ourselves, we judge others, we measure up by possessions. Right? Stuff has a firm grip on our hearts, our houses, our cars, our clothes. And Jesus say, is saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to be part of my kingdom, you need to renounce it all. Let me ask you this. Where, where is your treasure? Let me put it in a, a different way. What gets you really excited? Nicer things? The prospect of a beautiful life. Or having Jesus. What gets you excited? What, what are we known for? Stuff, aesthetics, or are we known for simplicity and generosity and contentment? Is it wrong to have nice things? Not necessarily, but I think Jesus would say it's a dangerous game to play. I think, I think Jesus would say it's not wrong necessarily, but be careful. S sit down first and consider the cost. Read, read the Old Testament, read the New Testament, look at human history, like it's relationships, right? It's sex, it's 
selfish ambition, it's, it's possessions that, that, that slowly and subtly wrap their fingers around our hearts and pull us away from God? Are we willing to put Christ above our relationships, above our ambitions, and above, above our possessions? Jesus says we cannot be a disciple if we're not willing to do so. Salvation is free, but it will cost us our lives. As we finish, let's answer this last question. If, If Jesus makes these high demands, why should we accept them? Right? He's he's calling us to consider the cost, right? He's calling us to this this life of renouncing all. Uh, of loving and treasuring Jesus above all people and possessions, of, of following him, of, of bearing our cross, possibly to the point of death. Why accept these demands? The Bible gives us a lot of reasons, but I want to quickly end by giving us two reasons, one in the positive, one in the negative. Uh, firstly, the negative, I'm going to end with the positive, right? Um, the, the passages directly before this and after this show us that as costly, it is, as costly as it is to be a follower of Jesus, the cost of not following him is far greater. Right? Um, last week, Lucas looked at that uh, great banquet uh, section, and in that parable, Jesus shows us that uh, his disciples are like the guest of a banquet, right? They're, they're this, they've been invited to this party, this feast, and in that parable, the, the host of the banquet sends out these invitations, but when it comes time to begin the feast, all the invitees make excuses for why they cannot come. And what's, what's fascinating is their excuses actually mirror very closely the examples that Jesus gives in the cost of discipleship section, right? Their excuses are, sorry, I've just bought a field, and I need to go see it. I, I just bought some, some oxen. I need to go examine them. Sorry, I just got married. We're not going to be able to make it. Right? Earthly relationships, family, uh, stuff, ambitions. And Jesus says that the guests who make those excuses, who aren't willing to put him first, none of them shall taste my banquet. They will be left out of the kingdom. That, that future messianic banquet, none of them will enter. And then look at the, the, the last section, the salt section, verse 34. He said, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no use of either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Right? So followers of Jesus were meant to be salt, in the world, and he's saying that salt that isn't salty is worse than useless. It, it's, it, man, it's not even good enough to, 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 to put on the soil. It's not going to do anything. To put on the manure pile, it's thrown away. And listen, we're meant to take those warnings seriously. Not tasting the banquet, being thrown away, the, the cost of discipleship that Jesus is calling to is nothing compared to the cost of not following him. The cost of following Jesus is a momentary hardship. The cost of not following him is an eternal one. There's a positive reason for accepting his demands, though. I think I have Hebrews chapter 11 on the screen. 
This is an amazing verse. Um, verse 24 says, By faith, Moses, remember Moses? When he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Right? So Moses grew up as royalty, right? He, he was found in the basket uh, by Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. Essentially, then Moses was, was brought up. He was counted as part of the most powerful, wealthy family in the world. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, Moses, by faith, renounced it all and chose instead to be counted as part of God's family, which meant being mistreated with them rather than enjoying all the world had to offer. Why did he do that? Verse 26 tells us, because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to that reward. Um, if you remember back to that Hebrews series we did a few years ago, the writer was showing us that even those Old Testament characters like Abraham and Moses, who came long before Christ, they don't know who Christ is, but by faith, their faith was foreshadowing what was to come. And so that even Moses, by faith, what he was doing was he was looking forward to the heavenly reward rather than having eyes on this earthly one. In faith, he actually considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth, a far greater reward than any treasure Egypt could offer him. And so he was willing to enter into suffering with God's people. He was willing to lose his earthly relationships. He was willing to lose his, his, his whatever kind of royal ambition that he had. He was willing to renounce all of his earthly possessions if it meant he gained something far better. And that's exactly what Paul says in Philippians as well. Remember Paul's writing to that, that letter from shackles, right? Paul's writing to the church in Philippi uh, from prison. Paul's lost everything, all because he simply valued Jesus more than anything this earth could offer. And all through that letter, you can hear Paul, he had done what Jesus had, had, had told the disciples to do. You can, you can tell that Paul sat down and he considered the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. He understood what it meant. Let me just read you a few, um, a few bits from, from Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, What's happened to me, what's happened to him? He's sitting in prison. What's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. My imprisonment is for Christ. He's bearing the cross. It's costly discipleship. He says, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Hmm. Chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, I'm speaking to the church now, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Costly discipleship. Chapter 2, verse 17. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why did he do that? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ. What was Paul's motivation in enduring all that suffering? Gaining Christ. This was this greater reward that Paul's eyes was fixed on. He said in chapter 3, verse 18, he said that those who are enemies of the cross of Christ said that their end is destruction. They, they won't taste the banquet. They're, they're the useless salt that is thrown away. And he describes those people as their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. That's exactly what Jesus is warning us against in the cost of discipleship section. He's saying enemies of the cross of Christ are those who fail to value Christ above all else. That they are lured away by earthly things rather than setting their eyes on heavenly things. But Paul says, disciples of Jesus, who do, not love, uh, who do love and treasure him above all things, just like Moses did, just like Paul did, he said, for those people, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Oh my goodness. What a glory to come. Your earthly body, right, the one that doesn't really do what it's meant to do, doesn't really work the way it's meant to work, it will be transformed into a body like his, one that cannot die, like, there is great gain ahead, but, but hold on. Don't you see what Paul says? The, the, the body, that's not what we wait for. We are waiting for Christ. That, that's the gain that Paul is speaking of. That's what Paul is longing for. He, he is the better reward. This is why Paul was willing to renounce everything in this world in order to gain Christ. Listen, the, the discipleship is costly, but the reward is great. If you're willing to value and treasure Jesus above all else, he is willing to give you the greatest gift, right? The thing that will truly satisfy the longings of your heart more than anything this world can offer, himself. We gain Christ. More Jesus, amen. I want to end by, by pointing you to Jesus one more time. Because Jesus isn't calling his disciples to do something that he didn't do. He actually walks the path first. Listen to Paul in Philippians 2, 4 to 8. He tells the church not to look to their own interests, but to the interest of others. What is that? Well, that is death to self. Right? That is the, the, the costly discipleship. That is bearing your cross. He said in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
If, if Jesus bore the cross when he did not deserve it, how can we not? And think of what, think of what it cost him. Like this is the son of God. This is the, the creator of the universe. He, he has enjoyed perfect, satisfying union with the Father and the Spirit for all of eternity, and yet he left that and he came to earth. He made himself nothing. He, he renounced those heavenly, he, he was willing to give those things up in a way. He became a servant. He obediently endured death, and he obediently cried out, Father, not my will but yours be done. There was no greater cost than the one Jesus paid in order to bring you from death to life. Think of that. So, so two things are going on just as we finish here. Firstly, Jesus doesn't call us to anything that he hasn't done already himself. Okay? And don't misinterpret those parables. He's not saying, hey, hey, sit down and make sure you have what it takes to make it to the finish line. He's saying, I'll give you everything you need to make it. I'll give you everything you need in order to be faithful, but it's going to be costly. I'm going to show you the way. And so in one sense, Jesus is the example. He's the forerunner. We, we, we look to, to him as we uh, walk the road of the cross ourselves. But secondly, the entire reason Jesus endured the cross in the first place was in order to give you the greatest gift in the universe, which is himself. <laughs> the greatest satisfaction. The, the cost is great, but the reward is greater and in the end, the reward will not just be a, a, a heavenly body. It, it will not just be eternal life. It will not just be, hey, we get to be together forever. It will not be streets of gold. The reward is we gain Christ. And Jesus is calling us to believe that. He's calling us to sit down and place that in our hearts. To believe that gaining him is better than anything this world can offer or take away from us. This is, what, this is what Moses by faith, this is what the Apostle Paul believed as he sat in his shackles in the prison cell. And the only way forward is by fixing our eyes and our desires on Jesus. He is the reward. I'm going to end by reading you a quote from Jonathan Edwards. He said, the redeemed have all their objective good in God. God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and the enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that, that, that good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament, their diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death and which they are to rise to at the end of the world. The Lord God, he is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem and is the river of the water of life that runs, and is the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints, and the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. 
They will enjoy angels. They will enjoy one another. But that which they shall enjoy in the angels or in each other or in anything whatsoever that will yield them delight and happiness will be what will be seen of them in God. Would you stand with me and we'll pray. And Father, we... We beg you in the name of Jesus, your glorious and all-satisfying Son, that by your Holy Spirit you would come and awaken the hearts of everyone in this room to see and savor you as the highest, best, final, decisive good of the gospel to which everything else is pointing to and without which nothing else is good. And Father, would you, would you help us to believe that any cost that comes our way, any loss that we may endure will be worth it in order to love and value Jesus Christ above all else. Um, Lord, we cannot, we, we need you. Not only do we, do we need you to, to take another step, to take another breath, to hold us up, to, to, to make us make the end and, and be faithful, but Lord, you're what's at the end. You are the great reward. We get you. We get more, Jesus. Or we will spend eternity mining the riches of your glory and your love. Lord, would, you, would, you, would that capture the desires of our hearts? If we believe that, look, then the things of this world are rubbish, like Paul says. Dung. Lord, the only way forward is to keep our eyes on you, desire you above all else. Would you help us to do that, Lord? We need you to place that desire in our hearts. In your name we pray, amen.